Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a podcast on law and policy with the Hoover Institution's Richard Epstein and me, Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute and George Mason University. Richard, I feel like we haven't spoken in a while. How are you? I'm fine because we haven't spoken in a while. <laughs> this is our first episode back since I believe January. We're recording this in on October 11th. We've had a few months off to allow the political situation surrounding the new Biden administration to take shape. And Richard and I thought this would be a nice time to bring the, the podcast back. I guess we haven't had enough disagreement in our lives. Well, either that or enough other occupations to keep us diverted. Um, well, but I know look, I, whatever the, the reasons for the, the cessation, it's the resumption that is a source of rejoicing. Right. Uh, because it's always fun to talk and to joust with you, Adam. And you have a man who wears so many hats and does so many different things that I never quite know where you're coming from, which is part of the pleasure. Likewise, Richard, I'm so glad we're back and, and I'm looking forward to these conversations. We'll be uh, resuming for these these podcasts, I suppose, about once a month or so going forward. Uh, as we record this in early October, of course, the big news for us is the Supreme Court beginning its new term. There's some major cases already on the docket and some more that might be added later on, including a case on affirmative action. Uh, so, Richard, where should we start? Maybe with the uh, the little remarked upon case involving abortion? I've never heard of that case. Yeah, well, for those in the audience who have never heard of it either, <laughs> Wake the, up. Case of the case, of course, is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, a challenge to the state of Mississippi's restrictions on abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. Of course, this is only the latest in a string of recent cases on abortion, including the sort of quasi case of the of the Texas uh, statute that went up to the court on the emergency docket or shadow docket, and the court did not intervene. They will definitely have some things to say in a few weeks when this case is argued, I believe on December 1st. And then when the case is decided, surely one of the very last, if not the last decisions to come out of the court in early summer 2022. Richard, what are your thoughts on the case? What are my thoughts on the case? I said, uh, I think essentially we're going to have a shootout at the OK Corral, and I think this has finally come. Abortion is a very interesting topic, and one of the ways to understand it is to contrast it with the response that took place uh, to the privacy decision that took place a couple of years before in Griswold versus Connecticut. Griswold dealt with a law which essentially prohibited the sale of contraceptives even to married couples. It was thought to be influenced by the Catholic Church in one one slave or another. Uh, whether it was true or not, nobody said. And in order to get rid of that statute, what Justice Douglas did was to make a, to put it mildly, a square corner turn from Lockland against New York. Uh, it turns out that this was now a right of privacy. We weren't quite sure where it was in the Constitution. Uh, was it substantive due process or was it something else? And he struck the thing down and most of America yawned. And I think the reason why people yawned uh, was that uh, Connecticut was an outlier. Every other state had moved on over. Uh, when you get to the issue of abortion in 1973, it's a very different landscape. Everybody at the time had thought that abortion was simply a state law matter. Everybody at the time thought that the only question was what form of criminality the state could impose with respect to this and what kinds of exceptions they could make. Nobody thought that there would be a kind of an at-will exception for the first uh, trimester. And then this decision comes down from Harry Blackman, and it's a bolt out of the blue. And in this particular case, it was massive resistance to take a phrase from the segregation cases, those people who were opposed to Roe v. Wade or abortion beforehand were utterly unpersuaded by the decision, either on moral or on legal grounds. And so what's happened is it's never had a chance to settle in 
as being part of the American fabric. Uh, there was this chance in 1992 in Casey to overturn it, and a couple of agile steps meant that that never happened. But now there is a more conservative court, and uh, several of the justices are Catholic. This may or may not make a difference. Remember, Justice Brennan was also Catholic. Uh, so it's coming to roost. And I think the great issue in this case is going to be, uh, are we faithful originalists or are we people who essentially allow by prescription changes that have been introduced now close to 50 years ago to survive? Uh, my predictions constantly veer from one end to another. Uh, but I think that the American left is correct to think that there's a genuine view that most of the people on the Supreme Court will not regard the reliance interests as decisive. I think it's also generally regarded that the decisive vote will no longer be the chief justice, who I think is more likely than not to affirm Roe v. Wade. It's going to be uh, one of the three new appointees. And my guess is that I think that Barrett and Kavanaugh are likely to rule to overrule the decision. Uh, Justice Gorsuch has a libertarian streak that makes him a little bit harder to predict. So I think it's on the knife edge and that the appropriate social response is one of general anxiety on both sides uh, to this particular case. But I suspect that the lobbying and the amicus briefs will be fierce on this thing and that we shall have a very entertaining fall both before and after the case is argued. And you? Now, well, I'll offer my thoughts in just a second, but something you said along the way sort of perked my ears up. And you said you know, the question about whether the, the court will be faithful originalists on this issue. Now, one of the themes of this podcast, all the years we've been doing it, has been the different flavors of originalism. And we'll, we'll get back to that in a bit. And you've, you've, criticized originalist judges and scholars from time to time for having a pretty limited view of of originalism properly understood and that it's not just strict construction but of course there are rights that are uh, that are implicit in the constitution's text and structure that go beyond just the clearly enumerated ones and and so when you say the court would be a good originalist maybe could you spell that out a little bit more how the court would would arrive on an originalist decision that doesn't close the door completely on rights that go beyond sort of the, the specific enumerated ones? You know, I'm absolutely a believer that the structural constitution and so forth picks up where the text um, leaves off. Uh, but I, I think the way in which I would do this is I, I would try to look first to the kind of a textual situation and see whether there's anything that looks vaguely like an authorization of the right to engage in activity, which has been widely regarded as criminal. And generally speaking, I think if you start looking at the due process clause or the equal protection clause, uh, these are not clauses which are designed to redefine the scope of the criminal law. These are clauses which are designed to make sure that important protections in the administration of the criminal law are not going to be upset. Uh, so the kinds of processes that you use under the due process clause matter, and the risk of selective prosecution against one group or another group is what I think the target is of the equal protection clause. There's nothing about either of those things which start to say that you could radically redefine the substantive law in a way in which you've never done anything before. So that's the first point. The second point is the major element of implication that's of relevance in this particular case would be the police power. I think everybody knows that the phrase police power appears nowhere inside the United States Constitution. And yet, if you start looking at the uh, analysis historically and analytically of the Constitution, police power arguments of one sort or another are raised every way you could possibly imagine. There are sometimes narrow and sometimes broader definitions of the police power. Uh, but essentially, it all starts from a very simple process of implication. So somebody says, I'm entitled to say anything I want. Does that mean that I can now say, please kill somebody else? 
Or is that going to be the inducement of a crime? Uh, can I lie? Can I cheat? Can I defame people? What happens is freedom of speech means that you can engage in speech unless it turns out that it's criminal. How do we find out what it's criminal? Well, we have to invoke this notion of the police power. And so if you go through some of the early cases, what you discover is those cases having to do with the uh, First Amendment or, or, the, or, the, or the First World War and the various incitements to riot and things like that, Schenck and Abrams, these are assault and threat cases. Then you get the defamation cases in cases like New York Times and Sullivan. You get monopoly cases and so forth. These are all exceptions. But it turns out that if you accept the police power, it's awfully difficult within the traditional framework of a broad conception of the police power to say that abortion does not in some sense deal with matters of health and safety, particularly of an unborn child. There'll be a status as to whether it's an unborn child or a mere fetus. But all of these things, I think, mean that the implied exceptions actually make it harder uh, to get the right for an abortion out of the Constitution uh, rather than otherwise. So then what you do is you start looking to historical practice, and it's pretty much unbroken that you could criminalize the behavior, even though the nature of the criminals, the criminal offenses are going to differ. Uh, is it going to be the mother? Not going to be prosecuted. Is it going to be the physician? May well be prosecuted. A abetting murder or a lesser offense? All of that's going to be there. But the practice is uniformly event what's going on. So if you look to text, if you look to structure, if you look to sort of past practice and so forth, it turns out abortion rights become very low on that particular totem pole, which is why people like you, for example, who are very much opposed to abortion on moral ground, think that the constitutional arguments are just absolutely distorted. And when I wrote about this a very long time ago, 1973, uh, my reaction was that this was all make-believe law. And the question is whether or not it's been around long enough is going to change the balance. I think for most of the justices, the prescription arguments are not going to carry the day. So I think it's somewhat more likely than not, perhaps by a 5-4 vote, uh, that Roe will be overruled, uh, at which point the states will move into high gear and they will start passing statutes like they've done in New York uh, to basically return to the status quo ante that Roe has created as a matter of constitutional law, which at least gets the illegitimacy feature out of this in terms of should the court or the legislature do it, but still leaves open the question as to whether or not uh, you're under some kind of public duty as in Germany to protect the fetus against its own mother, as it were. And your views? I think, I'll get to my prediction in a second. We may or may not disagree, depending on how how thin we slice things. But I'll I'll start with this. You know, I think it's hard to top what Professor John Hart Ely famously said in the Yale Law Journal right after Roe was decided. Ely, who, as our listeners know, was, was... was no conservative. Uh, he criticized Roe from the very start, saying it's it's not just bad constitutional law. It's it's not constitutional law, and it betrays no real obligation, no sense of obligation that it needs to be constitutional law. It really was a force of of will by the court, an act of legislation dressed up in judicial robes, and and that's a familiar critique. I try to offer a writing of my own on this recently for, for commentary magazine. Our friends at commentary reached out to me when, when the Texas case uh, was, was, was bubbling up. And the way I described it was that while we often point out the lack of substance in a row, that's sort of like pointing out the lack of substance in a, in a black hole, right? A black hole is, is by and large a vast emptiness. Now, now you're being harsh, a small (laughs) bit of, of substance in the middle. But of course, that surrounding that em- that emptiness uh, is 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 horrific distortions of everything that surrounds it. Right? You look for a black hole, 
by by looking at how everything around it moves and shifts. And I think that's probably at this point now, almost 50 years on, the best way to think of Roe. You look at all the things in and around the court that have been distorted by Roe. Uh, every debate inside of the court now about um, about unenumerated rights is really a proxy war for Roe. And every debate about stare decisis is really just a proxy war for Roe. And then as you sort of pan back and you look around the court at all the processes in government that surround the court and everything in the states, everything gets distorted by Roe. And the most recent, I think, is this Texas statute that is extremely convoluted, the statute that basically outsources the enforcement of abortion law to private plaintiff bounty hunters. Uh, that There's no sense in which this is good government, except in the sense that this is the only way through the court's abortion jurisprudence and the court's um, the justiciability jurisprudence is the only way that such a a state law could could survive a, a TRO or a preliminary injunction under the court's own distorted jurisprudence. And so I think at this point, when you look at how profoundly Roe has deformed basically every aspect of constitutional government that, that's within its reach, uh, I think that, yes, now is the time for Roe to go away. And I've, I've been unabashed about that on this podcast and elsewhere, that I, I, I believe that Roe has no constitutional merit, and, and, and you know, the sooner it goes, the better. That said, I'll be curious to see exactly how far the court goes in this case. I'll, I'll hold on for a second. Richard, what were you about to say? No, I was saying, I mean, you're referring to Jonathan Mitchell, who was one of my prized students, and this ingenious scheme. Uh, what it does, in effect, is it sort of highlights the frustration that people have with the traditional situation to create a scheme which I think is really very constitutional and precarious. Uh, I don't like private enforcement of this, and I think what you're saying is, as a measure of desperation, direct attacks don't seem to work. We try this rather odd situation, and then we get a collateral debate over an issue that never ought to exist because of in fact, if Roe were overruled, we'd never have to worry about these kinds of things. I think that's what you're starting to worry about. It's also anytime you get a major constitutional transformation, what takes a beating is constitutional interpretation. So the new definitions of commerce after the New Deal be in no relationship to what the term meant before that time and so forth. You can't make a new constitution out of an old constitution unless you engage in some uh, interpretive ledger domain, sleight of hand. And I think that's what's being done. And I think that's what you're worried about am I do I do I read you correctly Adam that's right the combination of the totally vapid and vacuous um, Supreme Court jurisprudence on abortion combined with the also sort of nebulative and dubious standards around nationwide injunctions or at least just injunctive powers in general in the district courts has created this perfect storm where states can't really legislate at all around abortion without a lawsuit being immediately filed in the friendliest district court for the fastest TRO or preliminary injunction that shuts down any enforcement of the law. And the, and the Texas statute, which again, the Supreme Court is, is about to hear a challenge to the Mississippi statute, which is different, but this Texas statute that uh, placed the limits on abortion at the the, the time which we can detect normally detect heart, fetal heartbeats uh, and, and combining that substantive standard with a process by which state officials really play in the executive branch play no real role in the enforcement of the statute and it's outsourced to private actors. Uh, that's the only way in which Texas can, can create, can legislate new substantive limits on abortion 
uh, without inviting an immediate act by a, a district judge to stop everything in its tracks. And so that's just one symptom, the latest symptom of, of I think, a very deformed constitutional environment that, that Roe has, has fostered for 50 years in com- combination with other trends in and around the Supreme Court. So I, I, I welcome the Dobbs case. Here we're in Mississippi, we're talking about a statute, the Gestational Age Act, which puts basically the limit on abortion at 15 weeks, that after the 15th week of pregnancy, uh, a woman cannot get an abortion unless, if I remember correctly, uh, unless in cases of... of um, Life of the mother. Gestational, uh, sorry, what? Life of the mother and so forth. Well, that's right. Life of the mother and then also I, the um, severe fetal abnormalities. That's what I was looking for. But other than that, it's only in cases of medical emergency, which is really defined in terms of a physician's good faith clinical judgment about an abortion being necessary to preserve the life of a pregnant mother whose life is endangered by physical disorder, illness, injury, and, and so on. Look, I'll be curious. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, The obvious point about that is those people who are opposed to Roe on principle, like myself, uh, a very long time ago, uh, this 15-week statute is a compromise. Uh, There was no such thing before Justice Blackmun invented trimesters back in 1973. And if you were trying to go back to the status quo ante, uh, basically abortion would begin as a crime at the time that life began, which under traditional doctrine would be conception. So I mean, even in the effort to try to undo this particular situation, you still have all sorts of anomalies. And the final piece, of course, Adam, and I'm just your view, but your views about this is what happens if somebody does what they did in New York State, namely pass a law which says, you know, if Roe goes, we're going to enact it by statute. Do you think that's acceptable? Is your ground federal jurisdiction or are your objections essentially um, more on moral grounds to the action itself? Well, I'm, I'm a morally against it, of course. Um, uh, jurisprudentially, uh, this is just a question of of the the role of the court in 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 enforcing the Constitution. I, I've not yet been convinced by the by by advocates for a constitutional right against abortion. Uh, the argument that the Fourteenth Amendment precludes states from legalizing abortion. I'm not there yet. I, I don't know that I'll ever get there. I don't know that it's the role of the court to enforce that kind of, of interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And so, yeah, I think that getting rid of Roe would return this to state legislatures where a lot of states, and not just the blue ones, but I think purple ones as well, would bring uh, state law to something close to what we have already at the federal level. And And we should also point out that in the absence of Roe as an interpretation of the federal constitution, state Supreme Courts may well interpret their own constitutions in a variety of, of ways. I'm not, I'm not sure how I would view those interpretations. It would defend, depend on the specific constitutional text in each state. But this would play out in a lot of ways in a lot of different states. And I think that kind of process is a much better one for the, the constitutional health of the country than what we've had under Roe. Can I just say say a word word more about the Mississippi statute? How so? The the question, of course, is: Does this fifteen week standard conflict with the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution? Uh, which is to say, does it conflict with the undue burden standard that the Supreme Court uh, endorsed in Planned Parenthood versus Casey? And more specifically, does the fifteen week rule 
contradict Casey's reference to a viability standard. Uh, that is, that the state's power to legislate on abortion or to regulate abortion is extremely limited, if not non-existent, um, at the period before the unborn baby, the fetus, achieves viability outside of the womb. And I think it's pretty clear that under current medical technology and medical practices, it's hard to say that the, and I'm no scientist, so I might be getting this wrong, but I think it's hard, as I understand it, it's hard to say that the 15-week standard in Mississippi complies with Casey's viability standard. It does not. It does not. Okay. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Dr. Epstein. You're welcome. um, I'm just teasing. Um, Okay. So if that's the case, though, then the question is, how far does the court have to go if it agrees that the Mississippi standard should be affirmed and that the viability standard in Casey should go? I'm muddling this up. Here's where I'm going with this. (laughs) It may well be that a majority of the justices uphold the Mississippi statute as constitutional. And to do so, they would have to reject Planned Parenthood versus Casey's viability standard. It's not clear to me, though, that the justices will have to go so far as to say the undue burden standard goes away. And so where I'm puzzling through on trying to read the tea leaves and Dobbs is whether the court actually will, say, overturn all of Casey, overturn Roe to the extent the Roe even exists after Casey, or maybe a majority of the justices will uphold the statute, get rid of Casey's viability standard, and leave the remainder of the undue burden standard for another day. And I could I could offer some more thoughts on that, but Richard, what are your initial reactions? Well, my reaction is it's a standard situation. You have the following unpleasant choice. If you decide to be deeply principled, what you do is you'd get rid of Roe because the status quo ante was that which was essentially the appropriate constitutional norm. On the other hand, if you think the change is too precipitous, you'll try to find an intermediate position, and then you'll be just the way you were a moment ago. I don't know what this intermediate standard is. It can't be viability. I don't know what undue burden means in this particular context. I haven't invented a third standard. Um, It turns out that even if I could think of something that is persuasive unto me, it would be persuasive unto nobody else. And so you have the choice of essentially going right back to square one or trying to find another middle, which is going to be no more successful than the middle positions that were taken originally in row. My guess is that what happens is you'll see both kinds of justices. Um, Somebody like Gorsuch, I think it tends to be either black or white. We either do it or he won't do it. And somebody like Justice Roberts, Roberts, the chief, I think he's quite happy finding indefensible middle position because his attitude is you pay too high a price at the end. What makes it so difficult in this kind of situation is you can't sit there on the top of Mount Olympus and tell one side when it comes to trying to undo something which should have never done before, there's a unique path for getting it right. I mean, let me just sort of give a simple analogy from game theory. Um, If you're trying to figure out, you know, how a train ought to go and it stays on the tracks, things are very easy. If the train goes off the tracks and you're trying to figure out what you do to get it back on the tracks, it's very unlikely that you'll go back to the original kind of situation. You're going to have to make some adjustment in both the train and in the tracks in order to get it going. But there's no unique metric or logic that takes you to an intermediate position. And so what happens is I think it's a mistake even to use the word court. Uh, You have nine justices there, all of whom are independent thinkers, and it could be that you get nine positions, some of which 
are ambiguous even in and of themselves. It's the nature of these things. Once things start to go astray, um, you can't put it back together again. We could call this the jurisprudential version of the Humpty Dumpty problem, right? Remember an egg, once you break it, it's kind of hard to put it back together again. You know, I don't know that. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. I don't, when you said there's only one deeply principled way to do this, I just don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I think you can hold a few principles. One is that the justices should be originalist in their, in their interpretation of the Constitution. Um, but then the second question is, goes to how the courts go about enforcing their originalist interpretation. And, and when it comes to rolling back precedent, um, I, I, I could see a principled argument for rolling back precedents only so far as they need to be in a given rolled back in a given case. Of course, Justice Scalia, right, famously, uh, while he believed in precedent, he also believed um, in, in the, the rule of law as a law of rules and that it's incumbent upon the court to state the broadest possible rule rooted in constitutional text for the sake of clarity for the public and the political branches of government and for the lower courts. But as you mentioned, the other justices on the court don't necessarily see it that way. So I agree with you. I think Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas and Justice Alito are the most likely to to hold, you know, or in Thomas's case, to re reiterate that that Roe and Casey have no basis in constitutional text or tradition, and that the the precedents are, are worthy of no weight and they should be renounced altogether. I, I'll be curious to see where Justice Barrett lands on this, given that she dedicated her entire career as a legal scholar to questions of stare decisis in the courts and any other branches of government. I'll be curious to see where she comes down. And I think like you, I sense that Chief Justice Roberts and and, and maybe also Justice Kavanaugh, I think you maybe you said earlier that Justice Kavanaugh would go all in with the others. I don't know. No, we'll I see. didn't say that. Uh, oh, I you was, didn't say that? I'm, I misremembered. Um, I, I said I think it's much more doubtful. I, I would oh, think okay. it would be more likely that Justice Barrett would go all in than Justice Kavanaugh. Yeah. I think. Uh, is there any... And, and of course, of course, we we shouldn't uh, take for granted uh, that the three progressives on the on the court will all vote the same way, right? I'm just um, I think they will um, all vote. Yeah. I think we can take that for granted. I think yeah, we may have some different. I think we will have some different rationales amongst them about what what is this relevant? Stare decisive versus fundamental rights may be something on which they will differ amongst themselves. Uh, but I think that they are probably pretty predictable under this case. But uh, Adam, just to finish this up, one of the things you like to do is you talk about the law of contract. Something very simple: things go right, everything is right. But the moment something goes wrong, e.e. a bad precedent or a breach of contract, uh, the choices multiply. So there's been a breach of contract. Does that mean I disaffirm the contract, that I affirm the contract? If I affirm the contract, do I get expectation damages, reliance damages, specific performance, some combination of the two? Remedial stuff essentially tends to proliferate options, uh, and that's exactly what you're trying to talk about here. This is a remedial effort on the part of the conservative justice to correct road, and there is no unique method that gets you there. And that's the problem that everybody faces on trying to deal with the prediction. And so you could go from the complete whole hog position on the one hand to many compromised positions on the other. And my guess is 
if I had to pick it, I think that uh, there would be a minority in favor of overruling it entirely, a middle group, maybe even two, of trying to tailor it just to this case. And so what would happen is the three would go at the two and five, four, the statute would be obtained, would be sustained, and that row would not be formally overruled. That would be my guess as to where this thing is going to be coming out. But I have no inside information. Yeah, same like everybody else. I'm just guessing from from sheer ignorance yeah. on the outside. Uh, my guess, if I had to bet, I suppose it would be four one one three. There will be uh, four conservative justices, including Barrett, um, who who vote in favor of uh, doing away with Roe and Casey altogether. Uh, there will be three progressives uh, who, who will vote to to uphold them and strike down the statute, and uh, and that. Kavanaugh and Roberts will actually both write individual opinions. I think the middle ground approaches of Kavanaugh and Roberts are not necessarily the same and that each would want to write it in his his own specific terms. And so, yep, 4113, or maybe even if Barrett writes on her own, we could get 31113. But I don't think we're going to get, as in Casey, a sort of unified middle block that settles everything uniformly. Well, I think we have no reasonable disagreement on that score because what happens is we've buried all the hard questions behind waiting to see what these guys do. That's right. Well, let's move on to the gun case, New York State Rifle Association versus New York, a challenge to New York's limits on uh, the, the, the carrying of concealed weapons. I have to say, you know, at the outset, I think this is a case where the justices will be much less divided. I mean, they, they, this will not be a uni- unanimous opinion, but I think we'll see less, fewer fractures on the yeah. right. Uh, Richard, what's your sense of this case? Well, I think they took it to overrule the decision. Um, there are two ways to sort of think about this. Um, uh, putting aside all the complicated questions as to whether or not the Second Amendment applies to the state, and let's just assume that it does. Uh, what Keller stands for in this proposition is that you get some kind of higher form of scrutiny than rational basis. And so then the question is, how do you cash that out? And here the argument is made that the reason that this particular statute should be allowed is that what happens, it doesn't give you a generalized right to carry a weapon, but you have to show for cause why you need it more than anybody else. And I think from the police power perspective, that's asking exactly the wrong question. The right question to ask is when you carry a drug for a gun, for whatever reason you want to carry it, do you pose any threat to other individuals? So for example, suppose you're a model citizen, you've been trained by the National Rifle Association on how to use the gun. You've used one for many, many years, uh, but you're just one of many people who has a little bit of urban and you want to carry it. Under this standard, it turns out you can't do it. Uh, But I think if you were trying to worry about the police power as a kind of protection against threatened harms by other individuals, this person shows no threat, and so therefore he'll be able to carry it out. So uh, it's kind of a little bit like the standing question. If you need to show a special interest for standing, you need to show a special interest to carry a weapon, uh, then I think they would probably lose. But I think in this particular case, the justices will be reasonably persuaded that this is simply a rearguard action not to faithfully interpret uh, a hell of it, to find a nice way to get around it. Uh, and I think in the end it will fail. I don't know. I don't believe it will be uh, nine nothing. My guess is it will probably be six three. And you may figure out what the line is, but I think it's pretty clear. Yeah, I totally agree. My, my, if I had a bet on this one, it would be 6-3. You know, when when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you run a center for the study of the administrative state, everything looks like an administrative state. And that's one aspect 
that I think is lurking in the background of this case, um, and you sort of alluded to this too just a moment ago, it's, it's not just the question of whether, say, New York could regulate concealed weapons. New York, I think, has made its own case worse by legislating in such broad terms. In a time when you have a number of justices, a majority of the justices, actually pondering things like the non-delegation doctrine and thinking about the problems of of convoluted agency structures and, and, and so on. Here you have a statute that limits people's right to keep and bear arms, or at least to, to carry them, um, which I suppose is part of bearing arms, or at least or keeping them while you walk around town. And the statute basically sets a default rule that you, you may not have a license to keep a concealed weapon um, unless you show proper cause that you're entitled to it. That's the statutory term, if I remember correctly. And that's a totally open-ended term that just vests immense discretion in the officials administering the statute. And so here you have not just a fight about the Second Amendment, but a fight about whether New York can limit people's right to keep and bear arms in such a nebulous fashion that even if in theory you might be able to get this permit, this license, in practice, you're really not going to. And I know that's a subject you've written on over the years, your, your national affairs essay on, on, on government by waiver and so on. That's kind of what they have here, a statute that more or less precludes you from having a weapon unless the state waives that, that restriction. And so I think that this case will be informed not just by the justices reading of the Second Amendment, but by their rightful suspicion of what New York is actually doing here. And oh, by the way, I don't think it helped either that New York had a previous statute that nearly reached the Supreme Court, or I guess did reach the Supreme Court on, on under the same caption. Uh, at the end of the day, the court dismissed that case on jurisdictional grounds after real gamesmanship by lawmakers and also by after threats by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and others in a, a so-called friend of the court brief, more like a, a, you know, <laughs> a, an unfriend of the court, an enemy of the court brief, where they really threatened the court's legitimacy in hearing this case. I think here the justices probably will decide that enough's enough. They will offer some more clarity to a pretty open-ended decision in Heller, and that'll be that. And so I say 6-3. But, Richard, one last thing about the case from my perspective. Yes. I mean, Justice, Justice Scalia's opinion for the court in Heller did have a pretty open-ended caveat. He said, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on long-standing prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, yes. or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as school and government buildings, Laws conditioning and qual laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. Now, as far as I can see, the New York law doesn't touch on any of those. And therein um, lies the secret. I don't think that list is necessarily exhaustive, but I think it does point to the fact uh, that what has to happen is you have to look at the person who's getting the weapon and see what kind of threat uh, that person poses, uh, either generally or in particular settings. And insane people are obviously riskier people. Felons are obviously riskier people. Um, but essentially, if you wanted to figure out who the perfect plaintiff is, it's good old Heller himself, right? Uh, Dick Heller, the perfect policeman, wants to carry a gun in his own home and so on. And then what you could try to do is to say carrying a gun in your home is very different from keeping a gun on the public street. Uh, I don't think that you could make that distinction 
persuasive textually when they start talking about the right to keep and bear arms. They don't think they mean that you could keep bear arms only in your shower, uh, but you can't bear them on a public street. I think it's exactly the opposite. And I think, in effect, what intermediate scrutiny does is it requires you to show some degree of apparel that you have to avert and that the New York statute is not trying to do that. And so since it has a completely different agenda, I think they will find it easy enough to strike the thing down, I don't think they will say, aha, what we really have to do is to give New York a shot to explain this further on a remand. I think their attitude will be if New York then wants to pass another statute, let it pass another statute. And if it has the same basic vice, then we'll strike that one down as well. Uh, the way I would put it, Adam, is there are many areas, like, for example, you know, temporary takings and so forth, where the Supreme Court takes a very long holiday from dealing with an area. And then lower courts start to do all sorts of things that are clearly drifting away from the original purpose. And that, I think, is what happened here. And in this particular case, they summoned enough vote. And the only reason they called it up, I think, is to overturn it. This is not a, a kind of morally perplexed case like uh, the Roe v. Wade and the Mississippi situation in Dobbs. I think, in effect, that for those people who thought Heller was wrong, they haven't changed their mind and they will do everything they can to keep this case going. But anybody who thought Heller was right would have to think that this decision is wrong. So I think we're both betting then on on 6-3 uh, in favor of the Second Amendment and against New York. Richard, we only have a, a few moments left, but let's maybe end by taking a step back from it all. Um, this will be a, a controversial year at the Supreme Court, maybe the most controversial we've seen in a long time, given these and other cases that we're discussing. Also, uh, given, say, the pressure on Justice Breyer to retire. It's also going to be interesting in, in seeing Justice Thomas really take the lead in many ways, not just as the, the, the senior justice uh, next to the chief, but also um, in, in that he's, he's now in a position to ask more questions or to continue asking questions at oral argument, given the way that the court has, has adjusted its oral argument practices going forward. And we're going to see interesting debates among the, the court's conservative justices who may well all agree in the New York case if our bets are right, but they're going to, they have found and will continue to find interesting disagreements amongst themselves. So just in a closing thought, Richard, what's your big picture view of, of what we're looking at? Well, I think there are subtle differences that actually matter on the uh, left with three justices. Um, I think if you wanted to rank them sort of from center out to left, uh, there'd be Breyer, be, I think the most most conservative. I think that Kagan is a little bit close to him. And then I think there's a respectable gap between uh, Kagan and Sotomayor. Uh, but those are small compared to the stuff on the conservative side, uh, because conservatism has many different strands. You have the kind of libertarian skepticism of big government of, of Gorsuch. And then when you look at Justice Thomas on most of the cases about skepticism, he is very reluctant to overrule executive discretion, for example, in cases like Hamden and so so. Um, so what happens is there's a lot of different flavors going on there on many different axes. So what will happen is they will coalesce perhaps on half the cases and they will differ from one to another on the other half of the cases. And so what you will do is you'll see that the three will be able to pick up a couple. You know, uh, the situation that we had in Bostock, I think, is uh, kind of the a signal of the conservative disarray, as it were, for good, for better or for worse. Uh, Gorsuch writes a very strange opinion. Roberts goes along the three liberals go along and Justice Alito is apoplectic on the other side. Um, that will continue to happen. I don't see any change 
Uh, the only change that we're going to see, are, I think these people are relatively fixed in their attitudes. The only wild card is Justice Barrett because she's been there for a relatively short time. But until the composition of the court changes, I think the way that I've described this, a solid three and a flexible six, is probably the most accurate description of what will happen. You know, I, I, I often get asked, for whatever reason, I don't want people want my opinion, but I often get asked about the, the different flavors of conservatism on the court and which one is the best, who's the best conservative justice and so on. And the way I look at it is I think we're lucky to have this set of conservatives on the court, each of them sort of highlighting a different aspect of conservatism. Um, I don't think the court would be better if you had six justices who all shared the exact same flavor of conservatism. I think this this set of justices really does justice to the various themes of conservatism, whether it's Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas in, in, in their versions of originalism, or Justice Alito, who I wrote years ago, I called him the Burkean conservative, and that seemed to sort of stick a bit. Um, Kavanaugh, Roberts. Roberts, by the way, I tend to be more favorably predisposed towards him than most of our conservative friends are. And I, I do have some respect for his institutional approach. I think it's good for the chief justice, any chief justice to be an institutionalist, even when others might go further than him. Needless to say, I am, of course, keeping an eye on Justice Barrett, especially not just because she's the newest justice, but because the court is going to return over and over again to questions of precedent in our constitutional system. And, and given her writings on the subject, I think that she's the ideal justice to be added to the court for this moment, as the court has to take seriously its obligations to constitutional text and also the weight of precedent. But um, maybe aside from all of that, the justice I'm watching the most is, is Justice Kagan. Uh, she's, I think, the first, the court's first progressive justice in, in its modern era to really speak textualist as a first language. I don't agree with her her version of textualism, but she certainly knows how to how to frame arguments and think through cases in textualist terms in a way that I think is going to put more pressure on the conservative justices to think more precisely about their own versions of textualism. And the Bostock case, I think, is is the, the best example of that, where you did have Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito in profoundly different places in that case. Now, by the way, I think Justice Gorsuch, having written the Bostock case, will return to it again and again in his own textualist opinions that, that tend to have consequences in a more conservative direction. I think just as Justice Scalia often invoked his joining the court's opinion in, in the flag burning case, the Texas versus Johnson case, as an example of how his textualism brings him in a direction that isn't necessarily politically conservative. I think Justice Gorsuch now, having shown where his, textualist will te where his textualism will take him in a case like Bostock, can be very comfortable in taking, not that he wasn't, but can be able, he can be very comfortable in taking his textualism wherever it takes him in any given case without sort of knee-jerk reactions that, that he is himself a knee-jerk political conservative. And so we'll see how that plays out. But I'm looking forward to this year.
We all are. I think what's happened is we have people with fundamentally different philosophies who try to agree on particular cases. Uh, they can do it, but often it creates a kind of intellectual awkwardness as they try to paper over uh, serious, deep differences in order to reach short-term accommodations. This is a very old problem, and it's going to continue to go. But I think now, uh, sometimes I like to say we have completely theorized disagreements amongst the justices rather than incomplete theorized agreement. It's the opposite of what Cass said. And I think when judges have strong convictions, it's hard for them to compromise because they actually think they're giving up something. You know, in all the all the, the years that we, we've had on this podcast, I always end each episode by saying, please join us again for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. And it feels very nice to say that. I'm very happy to say there will be future episodes. And I'm so glad that, that we've, we've taken this moment now to get things going again. And Richard, I'm looking forward to many, many more disagreements with you and maybe even a few agreements. Oh, well, it's, it's okay to agree, even on different grounds. Okay, take care, Adam. Thanks for doing thanks this for with sure. me today. And thanks again to, to our audience for tuning in. We'll look forward to uh, speaking next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.